This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> and you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. What? Just say it. I saw you say you were about to say something smart, and then I cut you off by starting the show. No, I was just going to say you were falling asleep a few minutes ago, and then you drank all that tea, and boy, you're up and running. Those, yeah, no. You, those biscuits have worn off, and the tea is in charge now, babe. Tea is in charge. Listen, I'm upset about something, and I need to talk about it, because this is a safe space for me to be pissed about stupid things. Okay, I I don't know about the safe part, okay. but like I think a lot of people will hear about it. So, uh. Uh, so have you? I've made you listen to the In Our Time podcast from the BBC, right? It's a BBC radio show. I'm gonna say yes because okay. I don't remember, but sure, that's it was, possible. It was one of those things I expected you to like, and you didn't. You really didn't like it. Oh, yeah. It was historians sitting around a round table, and this really prissy, uptight host. Melvin Bragg sort of harassing them through the script that he's clearly written for everybody. Uh -huh. And they, in a single episode, they tackle a single historical topic. Margaret of Anjou was an episode or the Baltic Crusades, you know. So they're, they're really, it's, it can be a fast-paced, perfect sort of driving around L.A. listen. You can feel very informed while it's just done. really, that's uh, such a Christopher Rice thing to say. <laughs> Like when I heard it, it was about driving three or four hours to the desert, and it was Christopher getting us to listen to a podcast so that I wouldn't talk. So we didn't time. have unstructured conversation because <laughs> it makes me nervous because I'm on the spectrum. I think I don't like free talk. It's like free skate at the roller rink. And, and What's yet, the agenda? And yet I'm his best friend, which is like the the complete antithesis of 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 that particular premise. Anyway, so so. This is dumb. But okay, so they do the podcast. They do the radio show. And then for the podcast version, they have sort of the show after the show where it's still them sitting at the same table. <laughs> and they say, is there anything you wish we could have talked about more? And the different scholars, it's usually three or four scholars maybe. And, and they always say bacon because you just can't <laughs> talk enough about bacon. <laughs> 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 no, gotcha. <laughs> he did threw me off. Then they That's always why we can't have free talk. They always do the same thing. They say someone knocks on the door. Oh, it's our producer here with a very important announcement. And the producer says, "Would you like tea or coffee?" And then you hear them all answer, and you get to find out who wants tea versus who wants coffee. And on the recent episode I listened to, they cut out their answer. <laughs> And I was really upset. 
Because I wanted to find out which ones wanted tea and which ones wanted coffee. All right, look, I'm weird. I didn't say I was not weird. Maybe they one of them said, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Christopher has seen okay. this video on TikTok. No. <laughs> I'm not sure well, where. Wait, on the, the TikTok? It was on Reels, on Instagram okay. Reels, which is Instagram's attempt to squash TikTok. Yes. Okay, so. sure. It's called, the video is called Dave's Last Day of Kindergarten. And so this is like how, like he's. And that's it. That's the whole video. What you're not seeing is the little boy's legs being lifted out of frame as he's removed from the front row. Somebody grabs him by the arm and just lifts him straight out of the frame and he's gone. Poof. Yeah, not so strong now, are you, little man? Dave's last day of kindergarten. Yeah, so Christopher cannot hear that enough. I can't hear that enough. Which is so I thought I would throw it in in his discussion of what's the name of this show that uh, I Well, it doesn't matter anymore because now I don't sound or seem sophisticated because I was talking about the In Our Time podcast and now you've outed me as a fan of Dave's last day of kindergarten. Reels. (laughs) Reels. Um, The In Our Time podcast. It's... um, the best part is when little Prissy Melvin Bragg starts to come apart because they won't stay on his script. Like, he'll, he'll be like, well, I know you want to talk about that, but let's move forward. Let's not talk about the first Congress yet. And I love, I love listening to him get upset. Um, That's so adorable. It is. I, li- I, like, I like people being upset. Okay. We have a, I don't know Another, why. That's why we're friends. <laughs> Sadism that is what keeps it. us together. Listening to me be upset. That, yeah. that seems like a full-time job, sure. You, you know, you're kind of always upset. You're always... Uh, that's what I mean. Like a living Yelp review. This is what you are. So um, how's everything going with you today, Eric Shock? Well, we've been talking all about me since we started. Oh, well, um, I seem to be fine. Um, you know, <laughs> I... It's uh, it's been uh, so far so good. We're really only like four minutes into the show, so it's kind of early to tell. I may grow to hate you and even kill you before the show is over, but I don't think so. It seems to be all right. The tea is good. Yes, I'm comfortable. We hate the chairs. We've decided we, we hate do. the chairs in the studio. We got to so get rid of them. I and Brent to be. To be perfectly fair, Brandon, our uh, technical director, has hated them since the moment I bought them. We used to have these dining room chairs that were like these are chairs in the background. Yeah, they yes. were like struggling with a dead antelope <laughs> to try and move the chair out from the table enough that you could stand up. Right. Or so we got we gave those away, and I got these cute white leather rolling chairs that were, I'm gonna say. $10,000 a piece less expensive than what I actually wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there was a compromise there, as yes, you might imagine. Was. And it is these squeaky fart chairs, fart I chairs. believe is what they were yes. instantly called yes, upon their arrival. The fart chairs. Yes. And so, um, yeah. And so we've hated them for a really long time, actually. Um, and they've reached a point I was doing when I was in the studio recording um, audiobooks recently. Mm-hmm. Winky, winky, heads up. I'll keep you posted. Um, my, they were my audios, my books. Um, it was a constant struggle to keep the chair still enough yes. that I didn't ruin my own take. Yeah. I stood up when I was in here recording Sapphire Storm. I stood. Do not know how you did that. Yeah. I would be dead. Oh, God. From standing? We should get you checked out. <laughs> or force me to stand up until right. I'm quieter. 
<laughs> if we stand up for just 30 seconds, he just slows them down. It's not going to take him all the way over the line. Um, no, my lower back would be killing I me. See. If I had yeah. stood still in one place for that length of time, my lower back would have been in agony. I couldn't have done two days. Indeed. Anyway. Anyway. Fart, 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 fart. Fart, 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 We're getting rid of the chairs. We actually have a wonderful uh, True Crime TV club to do we today. We really do. It's this really an interesting story. Going to wrap up Van Gogh. Um, April showers bring Van Gogh flowers. By the end of the month, I'm completely mangling the topic for the moment. <laughs> because he's sick of it and doesn't think it's <laughs> nearly as clever as when I tossed it off in some facile conversation at <laughs> the beginning of the month. Oh, yeah, that'll be great. Uh, that'll be great. I'll have to say it 700 times. And How then it's exciting. not so great anymore. So um, this is on. This is from the YouTube Real Stories channel, which is we visit often because they have a lot of old documentaries on there, which are pretty good, but not available on streaming platforms or or for pay streaming platforms. We're not pirating anything. It's called Stealing Van Gogh, the greatest art heist of the 21st century. Standard True Crime TV Club disclaimer. You do not have to watch this to understand our conversation. We're going to serve it's it up. It's just YouTube. In enough detail. But it is free, and it's on YouTube here in the U.S. I, I don't know if that's true for people outside of our territory. I really, when we were traveling, I found there to be absolutely no difference. Yeah. Like, the Internet has become more universal. I did not have any difficulty accessing pretty much anything wherever I went. Yeah. That's true. Well, they heard about you, and they didn't want to have to do. Nobody with your wanted mouth. to hear about that. So yeah. Uh, the best part about this, well, not the best part, but a perk, is that the host is a man named Andrew Graham Dixon, who I'm familiar with because he does a lot of specials like this. But he was at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam giving a tour while we were there. I actually saw him. Yeah, it was very funny, and he is can speak Italian and is really proud of it. And yes. they took as many opportunities as he could to speak Italian even though it's not an Italian-language show. But it heads to Italy. It does. It heads and to so Italy. he was able to have very frank conversations in Italian. I, he seemed like somebody I would like. Yeah, that's what I thought. Well, if you did like him, he has done a lot of specials on BBC Select, which are that's how they're available here. Three-episode specials on the Dutch Masters or a three-episode special on the Painters of Spain. I watched them a lot during the pandemic. I don't. They were like my form of tourism. So it was very gratifying to actually get out internationally for the first time since the shutdowns and see him. And see him actually The guy out. I had watched at home. I guess yeah. he was like conducting some sort of a tour group yes. or something. But it was, yeah, he was, he, we were in a museum, I guess the Rijksmuseum. We were in the Rijksmuseum. And he That's was correct. at a distance giving, explaining it all to yeah. some group of Pinheads. <laughs> the people who required tour guides, unlike us, who just became completely oh furious my. when we couldn't find our way to the Van Gogh part right. of the Rijksmuseum. Oh, my God. That was so funny. It was the... Um, it was the Yves Saint Laurent part, and then there were yeah. two dresses. We yeah. walked up and down 42 flights of stairs wearing <laughs> coats and jackets and shoes and whatever, and then we got there, and there were two, count them, two Yves Saint Laurent dresses yeah. in a glass case, and I was like, I'm going to have to hurt somebody. It was got, time to get for out of this, lunch. Time to get out of this museum and eat something. It was time for lunch at that point. Okay. We're going to start today at a different museum. We're going back to the Van Gogh Museum. The special begins with grainy surveillance footage, and it, the host tells us shortly before 8 a.m. on Saturday, December 7th, 2002, a cold morning, in the museum quarter of Amsterdam, a van pulls up to the Van Gogh Museum, and two men unload a ladder, put some 
tolls into a bag. That is not what I meant to write in the notes. I don't know what tol- tools. Tools, I think. <laughs> tools. They wanted tolls for the bridge. Uh, they're they're dressed like regular workmen. They climb over a gate, set their ladder against a wall, put on ski masks, which is when the regular workman thing comes to an abrupt end, and they climb the wall of the Van Gogh Museum. Where we just were. They just were. Is that going to be a sneeze or a I, yawn? There was a lot was going really, on. I did not. I was unsure. But <laughs> it looks was like it's under control now. Creative movement with just Eric Shawquin. Dab at my nose with a Kleenex. They used a small wall to conceal themselves, and then they used sledgehammers <laughs> to smash a hole through a window. And this picture of them bringing a wall. <laughs> I like carrying it a like small a small wall so, to conceal themselves. Where did that wall come from? I don't know, but I can't tell what's going on behind it. I can Certainly say that not for sure. Thieves. Certainly, Certainly not. Probably, clearly, it's not thieves behind that wall. So they set off the first of a series of alarms. And they snatched two paintings, both of which are from the early years of Van Gogh's career, a seascape and a painting of a church. A female security guard spots them. Not sure why they need to point out that she's female. But museum regulations do not allow her to confront the thieves. Don't you erase her. I'm not trying to erase her, but I'm not trying. They they point out she's female like she's reluctant to confront them. No, they said, I I think she wanted to confront them. They said she couldn't. Exactly. They they explained why she didn't. It was because they were not allowed to. Right. They use a rope to scale the building. The police arrive at the back of the building and the thieves escape. The whole operation lasts three minutes and 40 minutes. Seconds. Um, so this is uh, this is a very popular museum. Two million people visit the Van Gogh Museum per year. Van Gogh. Van Gogh Museum. Two mm-hmm. of those people were us this year because we yes. were there a few weeks ago. Um, blah blah blah. In order to sort of express to us the value of these paintings, we are brought back to Christie's in London, where we visited in our previous True Crime TV Club about Van Gogh for a different reason. Uh, they uh, they tell us that one of his recent paintings, which Van Gogh did during his time in an asylum, auctioned for 21.5 million Great British Pounds, which is a lot of money. Great British Pounds? Great. Isn't that, I thought that's what the G was for. I'm sure it is. Yeah, Great British Pounds. I've just like never it. heard anybody say that out loud GBP. before. If it's not great, write to the Facebook page and tell us no, what it is. No, it's U.S. dollars. I yeah. I. USD and GBP. I just, I've never heard anybody actually say Great British Pounds. Well, I think they usually they just say pounds. I think they should say Great British Pounds because every street there is great. Great Sussex Street, but, great whatever street. But there are no other pounds. Yeah, British Pounds. They're just pounds. Pounds. Like they're the only ones with pounds. Nobody yeah. else has pounds. There's pounds sterling. Oh, pound sterling. I'm, I'm sorry. Our so, producer is saying in my ear, so pound GBP sterling. So GBP is pronounced pound sterling? Okay. Yes, he says. All right, so, then. Okay. So, um, I wouldn't have guessed that because there's no S in there anywhere. But if that's what Brandon says, it's probably true because he's pretty smart. Out of all the artists who work in this, I'm going to move on now. Would you, should we linger on this? No, I think you should say Great British Pounds again. Great British Pounds. 21.5 million. Great British Pounds. Great British Pounds. Out of all the artists whose works have been stolen, Van Gogh ranks at the top. The Nazis first confiscated his paintings in 1937. Forty heists have happened since then, and not all of the paintings involved have been recovered. The Dutch police put one of their top detectives on the case. His name is Bob Shargan. Uh, he quickly discovers the thieves left behind a hat. 
Then downstairs from where they broke a window, they left behind rope and a cap, and there is DNA inside all of these items. There's a clear match from the Dutch database of previously convicted offenders. I had to spell this one out phonetically, and they never flashed it up on the screen. Octave Oki Durham was a well-known burglar in their database. Does that, did it sound like I got it right? Oki Durham? Yeah. Oki Durham, yeah. <clears throat> he flees to Spain and is, erect, and is arrested in 20,003. <laughs> That's what it says in your notes, so it That's must be true. It's got to be true. It's got to be true. So in, uh, in another uh, 19,000 years, he'll be arrested. He's brought back to Holland, obviously in 2003. He denies it, and he does not turn up the paintings, but they've got DNA, and so he is arrested. <laughs> I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring, it's available wherever ebooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. Okay, so they've arrested a thief. He fled to Spain. His name is Aki Durham. They brought him back. He won't admit to the crime, but the DNA that they found in the hat and the rope and whatever that was left behind at the museum. It's incontrovertible, it's and so incontrovertible. he goes down for this shit, but he doesn't right. tell them where the paintings are, and so that's going to be a problem. So a Dutch prosecutor gets involved, Wilhelm Nykerk. He follows the money. Wiretap evidence has the thieves talking about money, which suggests the paintings were sold quite fast, and they refer to 50,000 euros. Jesus Christ, can you imagine being stupid enough to sell a Van Gogh for 50,000 euros? I mean, for real. As being half of what they were expecting. So they were still only expecting 100,000 euros. Morons. A lot of purchases, watches, trips they took. Yeah. There's just evidence of spending. Just being flash stupid yeah. thieves. Jesus. So eventually they turn up some evidence or a lead that says in early 2003, Durham tried to sell the paintings to a notorious figure in the Dutch underworld. I didn't know the Dutch had an underworld. I was been a lot more frightened when we were in Amsterdam. I know. everybody. They talk about it like it's this dangerous city. And anyway, he was involved There's in a the— a lot of drugs and prostitution, <clears throat> so I guess, you know— But it's legal. I guess so. So where does the underworld come from? I have from? no idea. We have questions. Right? We're going to go back and, and grill our walking guide tour. <laughs> Where are these criminals we heard about on television? We would like to be introduced to Corvan Hout. That will be impossible because he was killed in a gangland hit. So not him, but whoever succeeded him would be nice. But this man, this underworld guy who got, who didn't buy the paintings and got killed before he could, was involved in the kidnapping of the heir to the Heineken fortune again. And that's who did. That's who owned our hotel. The Heineken family owned our hotel. Yeah. 
Totally. So I really don't know what's going on. Yeah, we really missed a sizable portion of what was happening. That hotel may have been a hotbed of <laughs> underworld activity. Who knows? And none of them could get it done because you were too busy calling down asking for things. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Criminal activity but in Amsterdam first, came to a stop when Eric first, arrived. first, Eric is here and I need stuff. Things okay. need to happen. So more wiretap evidence coming out of Durham suggests that he eventually got a bunch of money from a mysterious man named Pinocchio. Whose nose grew when he told a lie. <laughs> who might have, who should have been easy to find. I but. would think if he was having a bad day and tell, making a lot of shit up. So Durham goes on trial in May of 2004. He's convinced based on the DNA and the wiretaps. He gets four and a half years and has to pay 350,000 euros to the museum. But he wouldn't say anything about what happened to the paintings. The judge calls it, and I'm quoting now, a crime against Dutch cultural heritage. Which I'm sure really upset Oki. <laughs> I'm sure he was like, oh, oh no, your heritage. Oh, oh. no, I just feel terrible. <laughs> I feel awful. Let's anyway. just weep, weep. Yeah. Ironic tears. Like, I don't even have 100,000 euros. <laughs> Why do you think you're getting 350,000 out of me? That's You're not only stupid, but pretentious. <laughs> Gotta go now. So now we talk about the paintings, which is, I have to say, Andrew Graham Dixon's specialty. So he really lights up during he this part. He really does lean into this one. It was interesting. It was interesting. And it was certainly more interesting than anything in that movie we watched last week. Absolutely. We're still going to talk about that, are we? Just so, No, just one passing okay. glance at it. So what, the beach scene that was stolen was painted on the beach at Shenvin. Um <laughs> And... Um, it was painted in the second. <laughs> it was painted in the second Sorry. half. It looks like Chavin again. It's. I think it's. It looks like it's the name of a of a of a of a restaurant and bar at your local mall. <laughs> Chavinigans. Chavinigans. They have grapefruit drinks. They really do, and the best brownie Sunday. And they have a, a hors d'oeuvre special on Fridays. <laughs> All the apps you can eat. Right. Okay, I, we have to focus. This is art. This is serious. We're talking about art. We were talking about Chavinigan. <laughs> Chavinigan is the boot beach town. He painted. This was his first oil painting. That's really the point. And he went out. His brotherhood had been encouraging him to work in oils. And so Vincent went to the beach on a windy, stormy, blustery day in the middle of a gale, allegedly. And the wind was blowing so hard that his canvas became encrusted with sand. And he said it taught him that oil painting was like infinity. Um, and I, I love the description. And they show Andrew Graham Dixon on the beach. And I just would like to pause for a moment and imagine your brother encouraging you to work in oils. I just loved that yeah. detail, that these people were so connected to and invested in art at the level that it was able, that it was possible. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It would be like somebody saying, oh, you should really get, I don't know, a YouTube account or something, you know, mm -hmm. in our current culture. Right. This was, like, this was cutting edge. Yes. Like, because oil is available in a tube now. Yes. You can get oil paints in a tube. You don't have to mix them up yourself. They actually come in a tube, which was a technological leap forward. And you can create these things that will then endure. I just, I was really struck by that detail. Yeah. We're then introduced to Willem van Gogh. And Christopher was less struck by that <laughs> detail, just, clearly. Yeah, I got a TikTok. Yeah, okay. yeah. Willem van Gogh is the heir to the van Gogh family fortune, legacy. He's currently owns all those pictures yeah. in that museum. Because as we talked about previously, the deal that Van Gogh's heir made 
was that the family would continue to control the paintings, but the Dutch government would build the museum. So they got a sweet deal to, to house all the paintings, but to also make them available to the public. And I think they also get some sort of, there was some discussion of them also having merchandising. Yeah. So that all of that tap that I bought right. <laughs> while we were there helped finance the family, and, and yeah. which is great. Totally. I'm happy about that. The reason we're talking to Willem van Gogh is because he's going to tell us that the church painting, and I think some of this is about neither of these paintings are like the sunflowers or the lilies or the whatever. The, 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 it's not Starry Night, but they're formative paintings in his experience, and in the, in the church painting was for his mother. His father was a pastor. He also made an attempt, Van Gogh did, at being a pastor. It didn't really work out. And so there was a great sentimental attachment to this painting for the family. And it was his father's funeral that oh. was being depicted in the in the painting. Yeah. That there's the people, in the, the figures in the, the dark clad figures in the picture are. Oh. Because it was the church where the father actually preached and it was the church where his father was, um, I don't know, funeralized, as they say back home. Thank you for paying attention to that part because apparently I missed that. That detail went flying by. That's okay. That's what I'm here for. That's why there's two of us doing this podcast. Okay. So there are a lot of heists of Van Gogh's work, as we said earlier, in 2005. I guess because it's so iconic. Yeah. Um, 24 Dutch masterpieces are snatched in a single heist in 2005. That's, that was really mind-blowing. That's pretty mind-blowing. They're ripped from their frames as well. They vanished for a decade. In 2016, some of them are suddenly recovered. Um, we meet Ad Geerdnick, the director of the West Fries Museum. Very well done. Thank you. I'm just going in with confidence after my Chevalier. Right, after Chevalier's. <laughs> he says something very interesting. He says, there are no art criminals per se. There are just criminals who occasionally steal art. Yeah, and, that made real sense. But there's a side, the, the effect of that is they treat the art like shit. Really, they, because it's just an object. Yeah. They don't actually care about it. That was hard to see. They're just currency for the thieves, as he puts it. So eventually those paintings in the major heist, uh, I'm calling it a major heist because there were so many stolen at once. Right. They turn up in the Ukraine, which suggests the international reach of the criminal underworld. You said underworld. that in the same way they did in this thing. I, I was less astonished by that fact. They said the Ukraine, like they turned up in Mozambique or Darkest right. Africa or Mumbai or somewhere. It was like... I thought, okay, well, that seems like as likely a place as anywhere. It's still in Europe. It's not that far from where they were stolen from in the first place. They seemed amazed by it. In the Why did you find that amazing? I think just in terms of pure distance, it's kind of far away. It may culturally still be part of Europe, but it's a pretty big expanse, I think, across all of those countries. I think Poland is pretty large. It just it wasn't what I was expecting. I was expecting them to go south, which is where they eventually go. Or I was expecting it to be found in the home of some private collector. But that's in keeping with what we what we just learned. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, they don't see it that way. Right. It, they didn't treat it that way, and so it didn't wind up. That's, I think, the myth of the, um, the blacklist and what have you, where it's some private collector has hired somebody to steal their favorite, you know, the Mona right. Lisa, so they can see it in their own secret vault where they right. drink their tea and... 
make eyes at the Mona Lisa or whatever it is. Anyway. But we're going to get to there's – a, there's a twist at the end of the story that will address some of this. Okay. We, we're introduced to Arthur Brand, who's an independent art crime investigator who eventually uncovers all these canvases. He says that this world is incredibly small and they all gossip like old ladies at a tea club. I love that detail. So eventually you get a lead. And the standard in the underworld is a thief can get 10% of the painting's value on the open market. It's not a lot for if you're going to go to the risk of robbing a museum. But 10% of $50 million is still $5 million. That's true. You're better at math than I am. Uh, Well, that may be wrong because we're both bad at math and you wouldn't know it. (laughs) (laughs) But I think 10 times 5 is 50, so... Okay, suddenly there's a new lead thousands of miles away in Rome, a canvas from 1889 called The Gardener, dating to the end of Van Gogh's life. This is the year he was in his asylum. As we've talked about previously, he did a lot of painting while he was in the asylum. Uh, But it was also done not long before he was found drinking kerosene from his lamp, having eaten his own paint. That was really a suicidal detail that I had not heard before this. And that was like... Oh, well, that really gives more credence to the suicide theory. Yeah. Like if there's been other attempts to kill himself, I didn't realize that that was true until I heard this. Yeah. This painting that is that has been turned up in Rome was stolen in an armed heist that involved the thieves tying up museum security guards. And they stole two paintings by Van Gogh and two by Cezanne. Uh, so Italy's elite car- uh- <laughs> Carbonari. Carabinieri Art Squad is one of the top in Europe. And we're introduced to Ferdinando Musella, and he says there was obviously an informer inside of the museum who set up the, set up the heist. Um, the Italian police that organized a raid on two flats in Rome, and they found the gardener and the Cezanne. In the course of that, they got a promising lead on the stolen Van Goghs from Amsterdam, but he would not talk about it. He really, really, really won't talk about it. Makes a big hand gesture deal of not talking about it because it allegedly involved an undercover operation with <laughs> Italian police dressed up as Johns with fake prostitutes on their arms. I really love that detail. He didn't want to talk about it because they make complete fools of themselves. <laughs> Okay, meanwhile in Amsterdam, six years go by with no reliable leads. And then in 2016, a quiet but persistent investigation in Naples changed everything. So we meet who I'm going to predict was probably Eric's favorite player in this whole piece. We meet the um, fabulous Italian female district attorney or whatever, Stefania Castaldi. She was pretty great. She tells us that in 2004, there was a ferocious turf war taking place in Naples. 120 people were killed, a lot of them innocents. And this was a turf war among the Camorra, which is one of Italy's oldest and largest criminal organizations. And unlike the Mafia, which is based in Sicily, the Camorra is based in Naples with, I'm quoting now, tentacles around the world. In a distinctly British move, the narration tells us that the U.S. made secret deals with the Camorra to overthrow Mussolini in 1945. That sounds about right so to us. We are, once again, blamed for something. Big, that we probably did. Yes. Much of the turf war played out for control of the drug trade in Scampia, which was a 60s urban development in the north of Naples. It looks like a really rough area I mean, it looked like a really bad project. Yeah. It was really an ugly area. Yeah. 
A uh, local journalist who's been covering these wars for years, Dario Del Porto, tells us every mafia is stronger in areas with poor families. The Camorra use desperation to achieve power. So back to the prosecutor. She made a significant discovery that provided a direct link to the stolen Van Goghs. She flipped some people in her investigation around the Camorra. And one informant tells her that he bought drugs from a Dutch-based drug trafficker named Raffaele Imperiale. Which sounds so Dutch. Um, he is actually from Castle Mare, a picturesque that, town overlooking the Bay of Naples. And that explains why it doesn't sound Dutch. And so our host, Andrew, gets taken on a driving tour of it by Colonel Giovanni Salerno, who is an expert on the case. And he tells us this was Raffaele Imperiale's hometown, that Raffaele's father was a real estate investor. He came from privilege and decided to go into crime. Because, you know. That was what they were teaching at the trade school. <laughs> I, I thought that was really like, yeah. like what a jerk. Yes, exactly. And we've just gotten this lecture about how the Camorra only thrives in areas with yeah. poor, desperate so this people. This incredibly wealthy and man then- <laughs> becomes a drug dealer in Amsterdam. Like, yeah. Okay, well, I guess, sure, but totally. Jesus. Uh, in his 20s, he opens up a coffee shop in Amsterdam where he legally sold cannabis, but he decided to traffic the drugs that weren't legal and organized large-scale shipments on behalf of the Camorra. And they they said this as casually as, like, well, obviously. Yeah. He opened a coffee shop and began became the largest dealer in cocaine in <laughs> northern Europe. And I was like, oh, okay, does that that's what, happen that's a lot with coffee you, shops? You get addicted to the coffee and the caffeine, and then you want cocaine. It's science. I'm I sorry. See. That it's makes science. sense. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So in September of 2016, there's a breakthrough in the case. Imperiali and his business partner, Mario Cironi, admitted to having the two Van Goghs. Now, they admitted this for a very specific reason, which gets into a finer point and of Italian law. And this is law. really the thing yeah. that really, this one rocked me. Yes, because this is like, okay, so Cironi, or Cironi, is sentenced to 14 years. But Imperiale relocates to Dubai, which has no extradition treaty. Because he's from a rich family, and that's what you do. Exactly. So Imperiale spills everything in a written confession and says he purchased the stolen Van Goghs using his drug money 
and he claims he paid 5 million euros for them. He is Pinocchio. But he paid 5 million euros for something that somebody sold for 100,000 euros. I'm, yeah, it was a I'm, I thought that was yeah. like, who did you pay 5 million euros right. to? I wasn't the people that stole them or were selling them. So I don't know. I think that may be an inflated figure. It may be the, the Donald Trump school of um, <laughs> math evaluation. And, and, Donald Trump appraisals and, uh, yeah, are the us. Donald Trump appraisals, yes. Okay, so the question, though, is why did he confess? Why did he confess in writing? And it turns out there's a clause in the Italian criminal code that encourages witnesses to speak out against organized crime. If the accused provides new information during an investigation, this can be considered to reduce the sentence. So the court was asking for 18 years, and he thought if he coughed up the Van Goghs, he could half that sentence, which apparently, according to Stefani or Stefiani, was not a stupid thing to think, given what the law is yeah. in Italy. But is this what threw you for the loop? Yeah. He had essentially stolen these paintings specifically for this reason. For, to hold them as a get-out-of-jail card. Right. Because, and so, yeah, they were just in the floor in the kitchen as, as his apartment in Italy. They, they weren't, you know, like, right. they weren't in a vault that he was sitting enjoying them. They weren't enjoyed his art at all. Right. They were just in the floor of his kitchen. Okay, but help me out because I think I lost the thread here. It didn't work. Why didn't it work? I can't remember why it didn't work. They were well, like, he did not get his sentence knocked down to the extent no. that he would have hoped to, but he did get his sentence knocked down. So I heard that and I thought, well, I'm not sure that it didn't work. Yeah. But yeah, that was that was the way they phrased it. But I, I didn't. It seemed like it worked better than they were giving him credit for. And he's. I got the impression he's still in Dubai. I mean, I, there's no sense at the end of the special that he's uh, yeah, ever I, successfully like I extradited. I can't imagine that he went back home to serve yeah. prison time. Right. Because he got it cut down to nine years. Even if he'd succeeded, he wasn't going back. The paintings are recovered, and they are unveiled at a museum in Naples. And the rep from the Van Gogh Museum present is named Axel Ruger. And he tells us that six months later, they were back at the Van Gogh Museum. They required some restoration before they went back on display, but not much. They didn't look ruined. Uh, were introduced to So they the, were damaged. They were damaged. There was a piece missing from the lower side, but it wasn't, like, enormous. It wasn't, no. like, putting them under a kitchen floor. Yeah, pipe bursts like Jesus. I don't know. Yeah. Saskia van Odehausen is the conservator, and she points out that a piece was missing by two to seven centimeters, as we just said. And the, th the nice touch, particularly given that we talked about fakes in the previous True Crime TV Club about Van Gogh, is that they find evidence of the sand yeah. encrusted in the oil that he referenced in the letter he wrote to his brother Theo about painting this painting on yeah, the beach. Yeah, I love that detail. Shivanigans. <laughs> and so now free Shivanigans gift certificates for the first person to leave a comment on Facebook. <laughs> So, yeah, I was – that one, I was shocked. I did not see the ending coming. I did not know that they were stolen as an insurance policy. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting thing. And it it seemed to me at some level to incense the, thie the thieves to steal more. Like, right. Because it is a worthwhile investment if you can buy a get-out-of-jail-free card to have paintings, you know, that you can then just trade in for reduced jail time. Like, right. I, I just – it was kind of a mixed bag. I was glad that it was the reason they got them back, but I thought, well, maybe they wouldn't have been stolen in the first place or we would have found them sooner. Right. If that hadn't been an option for the, um, you know, to incent the sale of them in the first place. I, anyway, it was, 
it was really, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting story. It was, I thought it was a really interesting story and I thought it was really, um, intriguing to think of, of Van Gogh as being stolen more than, than most other artists. Yes. I was, I was quite struck by that fact. But again, I think it's because of the, I, the iconography of it isn't, Edvard Munch's The Scream, isn't that missing? No, I didn't know that. I thought somebody stole it, but everybody in the whole world has seen that painting. Yeah. So it has instant recognizable value. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, somebody stole the Mona Lisa for an extended, yeah. it was missing for an extended period, a long, it's yeah. been quite a long time ago. And I've always loved those stories about, is this the real one or is this a yeah. copy that's in there now? Or mm -hmm. And there's a whole Sherlock Holmes story about the the theft of it. That yeah, it's I, it you know. But the more iconic a work is, mm -hmm. the more likely it would seem to be, you yeah. know, to be to get targeted for theft for particularly for this particular, um, kind of commercial reason. This sort of. My mother used to always say, "Why do terrorists have to hurt people? They should just take art hostage." That would do the same. Just just hijack a painting and, and try to get what you want. And I was like, oh, that's so Anne Rice. That's so sweet, Anne. That's so sweet. It, because I think the sad part of this is that the, the, the art criminals aren't operating out of any great love for the art, right? Like, They don't care at all. Like, yeah. the, the thing where they stole all those masterpieces and just rolled them up and stuffed them in a closet, and mm -hmm. they were damaged by right. the fact that they were treated so poorly. They ripped them out of the frames and then just rolled them up and put them in a bag and threw them in the closet. Right. Like they were, you could see how yeah. much work they were going to have to do to restore them back to their, their, their former glory. And even then it would be not their former glory because right. they were so completely disregarded. They were just seen as the, you know, as no more valuable than the watches they were going to buy with the, the shitty payouts that they got. I just, yeah, yeah. it's crime doesn't pay. I just, mm -hmm. It really, like, because the people involved are not really, uh, you know, like, <laughs> never steal anything small. Is the, you know, like, yeah. you, raise your sights. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to be a real criminal, start a hedge fund. Yeah. <laughs> you do all kinds of unethical stuff and make billions of dollars and live like an absolute king. Yeah. And nobody will question you. Yeah. Even if you get caught, Michael Milken still lived like a king. Mm -hmm. anyway. Okay, so I have questions. This was a for me. This was a, yes. This is a month. We started off talking about our trip to Europe, and we visited Amsterdam, and we visited the Van Gogh Museum, and we did all these sorts of things. But you saw a lot of art along the way. Not just Van Gogh. We went to the Rijksmuseum. Yeah. We went to the British Museum. Although we went to see the painting at the Rijksmuseum that you saw with your the with Night your Watch parents, by, by Rembrandt. Yeah. Absolutely. What was your favorite piece of art that you saw on the trip? Oh, God. That is really a hard question. You know, I was really taken with the sunflowers. I was so surprised by the um, the sunflowers. That was really an amazing um, revelation. I just, I had not expected. I knew I wanted to see it, but it was not what I, I wanted to see the irises and the, the almond um, blossoms more, and I still love those. Those were still amazing. There were a number of artists at the Rijksmuseum mm -hmm. that I hadn't wasn't aware of before, right. who did works that I 
loved it. I can't even call them to mind now because I'm still that unfamiliar with their works. But discovering new artists mm-hmm. was really a, a part of what I loved that I got to see. They were they were so remarkable. Obviously, the the Rembrandts were astonishing. Incredible. There was one. Of that he did of himself when he was very young, mm-hmm. that I just it was kind of small. It was you know the size of a notebook or whatever. Just an amazing, an amazing piece of work. But God, my favorite. That's really, that's very hard to say. Did I say somewhere on the trip that this is my favorite? I uh, you didn't, and so that's why I thought I'd put you on the spot about it. But there was one painting of the artist that you were encountering for the first time at the Rijksmuseum. There was one, and his name is Art van der Neer, N-E-E-R, and his depiction of the. I guess you'd call them Tidelands of the Netherlands. Reminded you of Louisiana. Oh, that was so neat. Yeah, I got yeah. one of the. I got the postcard of that. That that particular work. It was really. Yeah, it was very coastal Louisiana. The the moon hanging there. It was a. It was a very atmospheric piece and and, and beautiful. That, I'm glad you still think so because I have stolen you that very painting. It's oh, right here. Great. I need something to go over the fireplace <laughs> at the new house, so that'll be great. I cut it out of the frame and put it in my bag. Just kidding. I did not. I did not. Uh, I did and not. there were a number of, um, we, we went to the Van Gogh exhibit there, which had the one Van Gogh. At the Rijksmuseum. At the Rijksmuseum. So the Van Gogh Museum is literally across the lawn from the Rijksmuseum, and then at the Rijksmuseum they let them have like one Van Gogh. There's yeah. a, the Van Gogh, and it is one self-portrait. And uh, there were a number of, I'm going to go with Impressionists, that were depicted there. Kayabo is one of my favorites, and he had works there. Um, and then there were a number of new artists that were depicted there who I, whose work I quite liked and was was really moved by. But I have to say, probably, if I'm going to pick anything, the thing that struck me the most was seeing those sunflowers at, mm-hmm. at, the, um, at the Van Gogh Museum because... They were so much more than I expected. Right, yeah. I, I knew I would love them, but I did not realize how transcendent they would be, how yeah. they seemed to have an inner glow. I don't know any other way to describe it. It was it was more than just a painting when I saw yeah, it. It was like, absolutely. oh, my God, that is an incredible work of art. There was also, you mentioned, I think, a few episodes ago, the fact that the Van Gogh Museum has other artists in it who were influential Lots. or connected to Van Gogh. And one of those artists was named Odilon Redon, or Redon, R-E-D-O-N. Uh-huh. We were quite taken with him, almost surrealist. Just stuff just amazing works of yeah. other artists that were influenced by him or who influenced him or who were part of their collections so also as we close out this month of van gogh april showers bring us van gogh flowers if we were to take another european trip or another trip overseas at some point where would you want to go well i would love to go to paris okay and really, like, I've only ever taken a day trip to Paris. Oh, okay. So I would really love to go and spend some time really having a look at it. You mm-hmm. know, I'd like to not just see the Eiffel Tower, but actually go up and have lunch in the Eiffel Tower, mm-hmm. whatever you can do in the Eiffel Tower. You know, really actually spend some time exploring the city. And, like, I've never been to any of the art galleries in, in Paris, which, God... Like the Louvre, yeah, the Musée d'Orsay, or the Musée d'Orsay, or any of it, so I could spend mm-hmm. a lifetime in those places. Yeah. Clearly, um, so that would be um, really 
I would love to do that. I know it seems like such an obvious choice, but I've only been there so briefly that I'd love to go back for more. Um, I've never been to Barcelona. Mm. That might be, it seems like a beautiful city. I loved Madrid. I spent some time in Madrid. Not lots of time in Madrid, but mm-hmm. um, that might be grand. Uh, I would love to go to Greece and see some of the ancient ruins and some of the islands that just seem so, you know, like to walk in those places where um, Socrates and who knows may have mm-hmm. walked, you know, to to be in those kinds of ancient places. I think that would be super intriguing. I don't know. What about you? Where would you want to? Scandinavia. I'd want to go to Norway oh, and oh, Stockholm. Yeah. And Bergen. Bergen oh, looks beautiful. Yeah, yeah. That would be amazing. Maybe we should reach out to Natalie Guttermason. I think she's she knows the area. I think she lived in Iceland for a long oh, yeah. time, or she's living in Iceland currently. But yeah, that's that's where I would want to go. I I have I was blessed with parents who took me on the culture tours of Europe when I was young, and I, well, I haven't seen Greece. Um, I have a desire to connect with my Viking roots. <laughs> I don't have any Viking roots. I don't know what I'm talking about. But I but, yeah, but I yeah. completely get that. I think it's a beautiful part of the world, Absolutely. and I'd love to to see like. I'd love to take a cruise in the fjords just up the coast yeah, of just right. to have a look at it. It just looks so astonishing and it would have the advantage of seeing nature with while still being on a boat and yes. not actually having to interact with it. Absolutely. I'm not a fan of being outside. So Absolutely. it would seem like the perfect way to experience that. Like totally. in complete luxury and warmth <laughs> while not while still seeing it. Um yeah. And then it's such a remarkable part of the world. Denmark, Finland, yeah. um, of course, Sweden and Norway. The, all of those are just astonishing places and yeah. remarkable people. So, yeah, I, I could totally see going there. Also, there's a lot of Romania, um, Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. It's not Czechoslovakia anymore. I forgot what I <laughs> – it's Prague. The and Czech Republic. The Czech Republic. Oh, yeah, totally. And, um, and, uh, the Bellamy States. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. There's this one. There's this one. Um, God, I think it's Romania. Um, this astonishing coastal city. It's this old city that's right on the water. That just seems I've I've seen pictures of that just seems like a beautiful yeah. part of the world and and largely undestroyed. You mm. know, like largely intact. So. Right. Yeah, there's a lot to see in Eastern Europe. There's a as lot well. to see. The, the answer Bellamy is everywhere. Air, everywhere is your everywhere. answer. But yeah, but you know, like Paris, mm. like that's really an obvious choice. But I have not done much in the way of exploring Paris. Maybe once they get Notre Dame up and running again, mm, maybe so. Who knows? One yeah. of these days, lots of the world to see. And then there are places like Angkor Wat that I would like to yeah. see, which I think is going to require a sedan chair because mm-hmm. I can't really see me wandering through the jungles, but it just seems so yeah. astonishing. I have some old friends, dear old friends of mine, I just saw on Facebook, they're, um, you know, my age, mm. and they went to um, uh, Machu Picchu. Oh, wow. Just, like, I just saw, like, this week or yeah. whatever, very recently, they posted pictures of, they said they'd always wanted to go. And 35 years later, he said, by God, we went right out and went to see it. And there they were. And I was like, wow, that's such a magical choice. I, I think, and do you think they went right out because of the, the lockdowns lifting and the end of COVID? I think we all are. That's I th- what I was going to say. I mean, the world is we thought it. we would be in the off season. The weather was terrible for the most part, wherever mm-hmm. we went. 
and it was swamped. I mean, it was mobbed. Everybody was like, get us on the road. Get us out of our houses. Get us yeah. back into the world. Yeah, we want people are back out. with the. I think it is going to be a record-breaking summer of tourism. Yeah. Like, yeah. everything I'm hearing is like, book now. Yeah. Like, they said that there's... Um, that the, there's a, a crisis with um, with passports right now in oh, this country wow. because there's a huge everybody's passport expired because they weren't going anywhere and now everybody wants their passport because they need to mm-hmm. to go and it takes months to get yeah, your passport totally. renewed. Well, it won't take months to get you a new episode of TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. We'll have one next week, right? But until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.